0: Mason Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 139, covering two weeks, September 17th through September 28th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeyville Institute. You can find all those social media buttons by going to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. You can also give us an email address there. We'll get you your a free ebook. And you'll also get our daily dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and our weekly email, Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. Don't forget to also rate our podcast on iTunes. You can do so. Just go to iTunes and rate it there. The better the, the better the rating, the more people see it. And so that helps the Podcast move up in the rankings. Also, get our app so you can have the Abbeville Institute on the go. It's free. Just go to iTunes or Google Play, your favorite app store. Just search for Abbeville Institute. You'll find our pod, our, our uh, app for our um, mobile application. There. Don't forget, we also have our conference coming up, November tenth, two thousand eighteen, on nullification and secession. It's going to be a grand time. It's in Dallas, Texas. So if you're in Texas, you should be going to this. First time we've ever done a conference in Texas. And so you should uh, come on out and meet us there. It's going to be a uh, a fabulous lineup of speakers. Uh, Don Livingston, uh, Jeff Deist, Kirk Sale, Alan Mendenhall, uh, Dan Fisher, represented from Oklahoma. Also Mark Evans now of CalExit. The leader of CalExit is going to be there uh, to talk about uh, California secession. Um, so that'll be uh, an interesting talk. Um, it's, uh, you it's know, Michael Bolden from the Tenth Amendment Center. So we've got a lot of great speakers. It will be a lot of fun. Just go to our webpage, middle of the page. You'll see a, a thing that says uh, you're invited. Click on that, and it'll take you out to the information for the event. And we'd love to see you in Dallas, Texas. All right. Um, well, as you might understand, we didn't have a podcast last week, and that's because I had the flu. And so I lost my voice. You might even be able to tell it now. I'm not back to 100% yet. Uh, But we needed to get another one in, so I'm going to cover both weeks, last week and this week, in the podcast, and I'm going to do so kind of topically. I don't want to go through all ten articles that we had, but I do want to talk about a couple of things, and these are things I was going to discuss last week, Um, and of course, in light of things that are going on in quote-unquote national politics today, I thought it would be um, beneficial to talk about this one particular issue, and it also factors into our conference in, uh, in November. And that's, of course, last week we had, quote-unquote, Constitution Day, uh, the day that's dedicated to the United States Constitution. In fact, if you are a school receiving federal funds, if you don't talk about the U.S. Constitution on September 17th or thereabouts, you can have your federal funds yanked from you. So that's very constitutional in a way, but um, I digress. Uh, The whole point of this, of course, is to say that we have this Constitution, people should be following the Constitution. They picked September 17th because that's the day the Constitution was signed in Philadelphia. Of course, when the Constitution was signed in Philadelphia, it was a scrap of parchment that had no meaning. It wasn't until the states ratified the document that it had any meaning or any validity, as James Madison pointed out. And that's an important distinction to make. Because without that distinction, I mean we think that the Constitution was somehow created in Philadelphia, and that's it. But what did it actually mean? And it wasn't up to the Supreme Court to decide what the Constitution meant. The states and their ratifying conventions determined what the Constitution meant. Those who were writing about the Constitution during the ratification process were determining what the Constitution was going to mean. It was this very public debate about the meaning of of the various clauses in the Constitution, that as James Madison said again, gave it life and validity. So when you look at what the the original intent, when we talk about that term, original intent, you have to go back to all of the public documents, public documents, in that period between the time the Constitution was signed in September of 1787 until the last state ratified the document. Because it's, it's how the Constitution was sold to the states that we should, it's how we should pay attention to the document. It's, it's, it's what the Constitution meant. So the friends of the Constitution, the proponents of the document, are the ones we should pay attention to. Now, that's not what Joseph Story says. Joseph Story in his commentaries on the Constitution says, no, 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 we should pay attention to the people that opposed it. Because that's what it means, you see. They said it created this very strong central government. They said it created a national government. They said it created all these implied powers. But all those arguments were rejected by the friends of the Constitution, the proponents of the document. And these terms we use, Federalists, -federalists, Anti-Federalists, those are ridiculous terms. Really what we had were proponents and opponents. And really what we had were nationalists who were pushing for a government they wouldn't get and Federalists, those who wanted to maintain a federal republic. And what we got, according to the ratifiers, was a federal republic. That's ultimately not what we got in terms of how the government operated. We had Nationalists, and the Nationalists won the day, ultimately. Not not in the antebellum period. They didn't win the day until after the war, because they were constantly defeated. In fact, the real the real history lesson here, is that the Nationalists were out of step with most of America. The Nationalists were the constant thorn in the side of real government. The Nationalists were the problem. The Nationalists were constantly agitating for something they said that they weren't going to get. You see, when Hamilton talks about the Constitution, the Federalist Essays, and he talks about the Constitution in Poughkeepsie, in New York, when he talks about these uh, implied powers as not existing, when he talks about the fact that uh, the Constitution is going to maintain the same type of union that existed under the Articles of Confederation, essentially, is what he's saying. The states still have a tremendous amount of power. The president's powers are circumscribed. All these things that he he argues are going to be there. And then when he becomes Secretary of Treasury and does a 180, that's distorting original intent. And that's why I wrote my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. But, That's important to understand because the nationalists were out of step with reality, not the Jeffersonians. When you take the U.S. history class, it's always, well, these people that believed in states' rights, these people that were advocating for a limited central government, well, they, they were the agitators. They were the problem. No, it was always the nationalists who were the problem. It was always those who were pushing for centralized control of things that they said they wouldn't get. When the Constitution was going through ratification. So last week we had a couple of pieces on this. We had a couple of pieces on the Anti Federalists, the quote unquote Anti Federalists. And it's interesting to read the Anti Federalists, because ultimately they were correct on the how the Constitution would be abused. But again, that's the important word abused. You see, they pointed out these sweeping clauses, these general clauses, are going to be used to destroy the states. They will be used to centralize power. They will be used to create implied powers. And they were told over and over again, no, no, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. Now, the first piece last week, William Watkins, Fractured Federalism, was actually written in the 90s when the Republicans had taken back control of Congress and you had this real jubilant atmosphere that Republicans are going to come in, they're going to take care of things, they're going to return the United States to federalism, they're going to, they're going to give power back to the states. First of all, the general government can't give power back to the states. The states already have it. It's already theirs. And the states have always had this power. I think that's the thing that the states, and if you're listening to this and you're thinking about running for office, um, don't run for a federal office. Run for a state office. Actually go in and work to the real, where the, rubber, where the rubber meets the road. I mean, go do the things there because the only way we're ever going to get out of any of this mess, left or right, is to have a return to federalism. But we've found out very quickly Republicans aren't really interested in federalism. They're just a national party. They always have been. The Republicans really haven't changed and I know people would say, well, there's a switch, there's a flip. I mean, you get all this argument back and forth. The Republicans have always been the Republicans. They've always been a national party. They've always been interested in nationalism. They give lip service to federalism because they know that's going to get them votes. But they don't really believe it. Now, I, I, some of the Republicans, I think, do. I mean, there's a handful. But most of them don't. They don't care. They're a national party. The Republicans really haven't changed their stand on just about anything. Uh, since the 1850s. What happened is conservative uh, conservative Southerners and conservatives in general in America don't have a party anymore. We haven't had one in a long time. But this idea of federalism is the one way. I mean, we, we've seen the fiasco that's going on in Washington with the Supreme Court nomination and all the stuff going on there. And should we nominate Brett Kavanaugh? And now he had all these accusations and what should happen here? And I'm not going to get into all that. But this shouldn't even be important. It shouldn't even matter who's on the federal bench because the judiciary shouldn't have final say in the constitutionality of law. That should, as Jefferson pointed out, the states can have an active process in that as well. And this federal judiciary, uh, as the Richmond Junto pointed out, when John Marshall was on the bench, has become far too powerful. And the states at that time, Virginia in particular, was trying to check the power of that federal judiciary. But we had nationalists who were causing problems, you see. So this, this resistance to uh, nationalization of everything in America, everything political in America, has been going on for a long period of time, 200 years. 200 years. It's almost been 200 years since McCulloch v. Maryland, which was one of the most egregious Supreme Court decisions in the history of the United States, if not the most egregious Supreme Court decision in the history of the United States. And the Richmond Hootown pointed that out. You had others at that, in that Marshall Court that were just as bad, maybe. But certainly, federalism has fallen by the wayside and what we've gotten is nationalism. So that that creates a climate where we have all these very contentious debates over every single issue which are really all state issues. What we argue about in America today the culture war that's going on these are all state issues. Now, of course, it's it's in some ways bigger than that because these these culture this culture transcends the states. It goes beyond the states. And so it's an education war as well, which is why the Abbeyville Institute exists. But all these political issues come down to states. If you even take, for example, the toppling of the Silent Sam statue, that's not a national issue. That's for the people of North Carolina. And the people of North Carolina should have every single one of those trusts, every single one of those uh, employees at the University of North Carolina that sat back and watched it happen and actually, in some ways, egged it on, they should all be fired. They should all be fired for that. Because that was illegal. Um, And if you want to have an investigation, there should be an investigation. Who was actually involved in this? But see, this is a state issue. Uh, I can say that this should happen, but if the people of North Carolina don't make it happen, well then, it's not really my place to say what should happen at that point. It's a travesty. It's a horrible thing to do these things. But of course, in my state, there's, been attempts to protect these type of monuments and that's just one example but a lot of issues a lot of these social issues whether it's uh legalization of marijuana or uh sanctuary cities or abortion or gun control these are all state issues that we put on a national level and it shouldn't happen but that's where federalism comes in and this is exactly what the founding generation said The state still had control over it. They call it their internal police. They said it over and over again. Well, the general government has power over general concerns, which they meant to be commerce and defense. But the internal police of a state, it all gets back to the state. I mean, this is where the state controls its own destiny. The internal police. You see? And this is what they meant by that. And they said it over and over. The friends of the Constitution, the proponents of the document, said it over and over. So federalism is the key to returning America to some sanity politically. Um, And that's something the Abbeville Institute has always, always maintained since it was founded in 2002. The piece last week on Tuesday, written by Jim McClellan, the late Jim McClellan, I mean, this is something that was also one of his driving motivations in writing and doing what he did in his uh, educational endeavors and pursuits. And Dr. Livingston, the same thing. And these are things that uh, scholars at the Abbeville Institute have been talking about for over a decade. And they've just now, in some way, started becoming trendy in the last few years, on the left and the right. This is why we're having a conference on these particular issues, why we've had other conferences on these issues. So I really like those pieces. And, of course, uh, this week we had a piece, I'm sorry, Calhoun, not Webster, was right. And it gets into this issue as well talking about, um, you know, at the time, who was right, was it Calhoun or Webster when it came to nationalism versus federalism? Calhoun, of course, was right the entire time. Daniel Webster is an interesting character, and if you've, uh, there's Richard Current's little biography of Daniel Webster. Um, gets into the inconsistencies of Webster, but he doesn't, doesn't necessarily say it, but it shows that Webster was always, more than anything else, a politician, and that Webster's nationalism was really sectionalism. If you go back to Daniel Webster in the early 19th century, Daniel Webster was a, null, was a nullifier and a secessionist because that suited his constituents. Daniel Webster was against protective tariffs because his constituents were commercial people and they didn't want protective tariffs. Daniel Webster became for protective tariffs because he started having industry in Massachusetts, or Massachusetts did in his district, and so therefore Daniel Webster became interested in tariffs. Daniel Webster talked about disunion as being, uh, I'm sorry, nullification as being disunion only when it suited Massachusetts. Because what they were looking at there was those tariffs that South Carolina was so against would help Massachusetts at the expense of everywhere else. And so nullification at that point became disunion and treason, whereas just about 20 years before that, it was perfectly acceptable. Daniel Webster made a speech in 1812 proposing nullification and ultimately secession If things did not change, if the uh, Republicans at the time, the Jeffersonians, did not change their political ways, then New England should secede. My thing is, the Jeffersonians, this is the great mistake of American history, should have been saying, yes, see you later, and giving them a kiss bye-bye. That would have saved an entire mess of American history. If New England had just seceded in 1815, American history would have been much different and we never would have had the great big bloody war in the middle of the 1860s. That was the great mistake of the Jeffersonians. The Jeffersonians, in fact, were real nationalists. What they believed, in good faith, was that they should have a union. Even John Taylor pointed this out. You can't have one section or the other ruling the country. It has to be for the union. You can't do one or the other. We can't even have the South running the country without, without giving back to the North in some ways. That would be dangerous. So, a real, and this is where Calhoun in 1816 was saying, Yeah, we'll have a tariff. We'll give back to the North. If we harmed your commerce during the War of 1812, we'll give back. We'll do this in the spirit of union. That's true union. Calhoun was always a unionist, he wasn't inconsistent. Nullification and secession by the 1830s were in favor of union because he was pointing out what we're doing now is sectional government. We can't do that. 1816 was different. That was in the spirit of union. 1832 is not in the spirit of union. That's a protective measure designed to help, exclusively help, northern industry at the expense of everyone else. That's the important thing to understand about Calhoun. Calhoun was always a unionist. Webster was always a sectionalist. And so when we talk about nationalism, when we get to the 1830s, it really is northern sectionalism. When we talk about nationalism in the founding period, what you'll find there are people that were really interested in maybe, I mean, Madison was certainly interested in a nation. Um, It wasn't sectionalism. But by the 1830s, that's what we can call it. Now, there were those in the Philadelphia Convention, Mason in particular, who were very concerned about New England sectionalism. This is why he wanted to have a constitutional amendment prohibiting what he called Navigation Acts, tariffs, because he could see that New England would run over the, the rest of the United States at one point. He wanted to ensure that would never happen. He was told this was not necessary. And that, uh, that amendment prohibiting Navigation Acts never made it anywhere. But that's what we have to understand when we look at what's happening in America now. We, we still have sections Ultimately, I mean, look—if you look at who was on this judiciary committee, on the on the Democrat side, a lot of these people were from New England. Look at the Republican side; a lot of these people were from the South. We still have divided government. In fact, uh, when you look at the Reconstruction period, you had substantially divided government at that point. So this is nothing new. At all, at all. Uh, And all of these issues, whether it's, you know, this Kavanaugh debate or uh, all the other things we talk about, this really just comes back to this, political power. It's about power, as people pointed out over and over again. This is all about power. It was all about power. No matter what period of time you're talking about, it's about one section or one party or one group, one faction controlling the government for their own purposes. John Devaney's piece on the Missouri Compromise, essentially, saying that this this late unpleasantness didn't begin in the 1850s. It began much before that, much earlier. And I, I would say it began really when the ink had barely dried on the Constitution. But certainly the Missouri Compromise showed this. The issue for many Southerners was not anything more than you can't tell a state what to do, as the Congress was trying to do. This is why Monroe said, I will veto any legislation that says Missouri cannot decide for itself what it's going to do with the institution of slavery. Because that's a state issue. The internal police of the state, you can't, the general government cannot legislate for the states. And what's interesting about that, when you get to the 13th Amendment, the Congress implicitly recognized that. They had no power over slavery at all, unless they had a constitutional amendment, even during the war. Even though Lincoln said this is a war power. They had no power over it. So. Everyone knew that. But now you're playing politics. And Missouri coming in as a slave state would have thrown the balance of power in favor of the South, ostensibly, and, and theoretically. And so New England would not have that. They had to have a balance. They had to have Maine. This is what it's all about, political power. The debate over the territories is always about political power, not about the morality of slavery. Calhoun pointed this out. It's never. It was never about that. It was never ever about that in the Congress, it was always about agitation and power. And I think when you get that, when you see that, it becomes crystal clear that American politics have not changed, that Calhoun, as Kirkwood said, Calhoun, not Webster, was right, Calhoun was always right in this particular scenario, that the Southerners who were worried about New England running roughshod over the South, should this Constitution be ratified, were right. That those, the anti-federalists, who warned against the scheming designs of nationalists, that they would not be appeased, that the Constitution would eventually do all these terrible things, were right. And that's because it's always been about power. Hamilton was always interested in power. And uh, so you have the nationalists get into office, and they do exactly the opposite of what they said they would do when the Constitution was going through ratification. But at the end of the day, when they argued that we still have federalism, we still have the internal police of the states left to the states, uh, any law that's unconstitutional is no law, it's void. The Friends of the Constitution were saying this. Roger Sherman saying the states would be powerful enough to check. Roger Sherman of Connecticut saying the states would be powerful enough to check any usurpation of power by the general government. This is how the Friends of the Document sold it, and it's important to understand that. but all of that's irrelevant now unless we have education unless we understand these things unless the Abbeville Institute and organizations like the Abbeville Institute unless this podcast and things like this podcast exist because what our goal is to try to get people to understand these issues from that perspective now one of the other pieces we had on Friday of this particular week, in fact, the 28th, What's in a Generat- Generational Name by Walt Garlington. I, I like this little piece um, because it talks about are, are we locked into these static terms, your generation X, your generation millennial, your generation Z, whatever it is? You're in this, you're the baby boomer generation. It seems that everything is tied into a generational name, and that's what we've come to characterize the people of that generation as. But in what Garlington is saying, we need to break we need to go beyond that. You're not a generation. There's something bigger to that. And he's talking about, you know, Southerners, and how you can break out of that. That really what you are is a southerner, not a generation. Being Southern is timeless. <clears throat> it's a timeless thing. It's your patrimony. It's your heritage. And it you could say the same thing about being a Yankee. I mean they're... They fully embrace it. A Yankee is a Yankee in 1850 as a Yankee in in 2018. A Yankee is a Yankee in 1620 as a Yankee was in 1790 as a Yankee was in 1850 as a Yankee is today. They embrace these things. They They don't change. They can't because it's in their DNA. And the same thing is true of Southerners. You don't have to be hidebound to that and tied to that generational name what you are as a southerner with a tradition that's older than any other tradition in america it goes back to jamestown it goes back to st augustine it's older than any other tradition in america and so we need to understand that and i think walt garlington has done us a service in this particular piece in reminding people of this it's something else that we do it's not just a political uh, theory that we do at this at the Abbeville Institute, talking about federalism, but it's also about Southern culture and history and heritage. Tradition. Tradition matters. It's, it was, Bradford talked about this over and over again. Remember who we are. If we remember who we are culturally, we'll remember who we are politically. Richard Weaver, The Southern Tradition at Bay. They talked about tradition and maintaining tradition and maintaining continuity. That was as important as all of these political issues. Because if you can remember who you are, all of that stuff will fall into place. And with that said, we ran a piece last Wednesday entitled Fighters. We have to remember that Southern history is bigger, as I just said, than four years of a war. I noticed that a lot of the pieces that we run, if they're on Lee, if they're on something to do with the Confederacy, if they're on something to do with Uh, the South during the war, they get a lot of views and a lot of discussion. And the pieces that are on, say, New South history, not as much. The pieces on colonial Southern history or uh, early antebellum Southern history, not as much. I think that's because we've all been, or a lot of Southerners have been conditioned to believe that the only time the South expressed itself as the South was between 1861 and 1865. And this is just completely untrue. Southern history is 400-plus years. And the piece we ran last week, Fighters, by Alvin York. If you don't know who Alvin York was, Alvin York was from Tennessee. He was one of the most decorated soldiers in World War I, won the Medal of Honor, uh, almost single-handedly took a German machine gun nest by himself. I mean, he had help. I mean, so single-handedly by himself, you know. But And he was a national celebrity. But he was a man of a place, of Tennessee. Alvin York would not have been who he was without being from Tennessee. And so after the war was over, there was a, an individual who went and lived in the mountains of Tennessee. Went and lived in the mountains of Tennessee and interviewed York and wrote down what he said. And uh, that became York's autobiography. And that chapter we published was from that autobiography, and it was one of the first things he talked about. And it's all about history and stories. If you read that particular piece, Fighters, you'll see that what York is talking about is the tradition of the people of Tennessee. He calls them Mountaineers. But it's that tradition, that martial tradition that made Sergeant York who he was. was. He was also a very devout Christian. In fact, he thought about being a conscientious objector in the war, but society decided he would go fight <clears throat> because of the traditions of Tennessee, because of the people there. And he ended up being this very uh, dec- this great hero, decorated soldier, Medal of Honor winner. But it wouldn't have been that way without Daniel Boone and David Crockett. He talks about these people. He talks about how there's still evidence of these people in the mountains of Tennessee, and how they're very proud of that, and how this, <clears throat> how these Tennessee people, these mountaineers, how they tell stories, and that was history. They didn't, they didn't read a lot, but their stories mattered. And how they passed down that tradition mattered. And you see, that's what we're doing here. That's what this podcast is. That's what everything we publish on the website is for. That tradition that you can pass down, as, Wal- as Walt Garlington says, it's a tradition It's something you pass down from generation to generation. And it doesn't matter. It is a memory. It's a remembered past. That's what history is. It doesn't matter what the other side says your history is. It's what you say it is in many ways. It's those traditions, those customs, those things that made Southern people unique and identifiable. Those are the things that matter. That federalism, that's an American political tradition. That the record proves but was there because of custom and precedent and tradition. That's why federalism exists. That's why everyone said it should exist in the founding period, because we have different sections, different people, different climates, different customs, different traditions. They all pointed this out. That's why it's essential to maintain these things, because we don't have a national culture. It's clear. All these issues that are made national shouldn't be because of traditions, because of custom, because of precedent. And that's why we need to understand that. So these two weeks could be boiled down into that. Maintaining tradition and the political way to maintain tradition is federalism. Until next time, good day.